Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. I got a call from a friend up in Estes Park, and they said, two of the people that were in the climbing group made it back to the camp, but your brother and another person didn't make it back. And we're starting a search. You need to bring your parents up to Estes Park. And so they started a search for him. And ultimately, they didn't find his body for about a year and a half after that avalanche. That was heartbreaking just because of how he made me feel. I quickly went into that, put on the mask, everything's fine. I didn't feel I was allowed to grieve because I had to take care of my mom and dad. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Amy Farnan. Amy grew up in a loving home with three siblings and a lot of laughter. Even with all the good she found at her core, she still had the inability to feel like she had worth or a voice. In middle school, she found alcohol and immediately felt powerful and pretty. She began saying the things that she'd always wanted to say, and the feeling hooked her. She had some level of management of her drinking through high school and college, and upon graduation began a spiritual journey with her brother, a professional rock climber, and someone who sought the spiritual in the same way that she did. The trip was incredible and opened her eyes to what other people were doing in the world. But six months later, her brother died in an avalanche while climbing. As the search for his body began, she was put in the strange position of communication liaison with the search efforts and caretaker to her parents. In that place, she was unable able to grieve in the way she needed to and instead placated herself and those around her with he died doing what he loved and thus kicked off her destructive relationship with alcohol that caused her to lose her child, her romantic relationship and her life. Finally, with the help of AA and Lion Rock Recovery, she was able to find sobriety that has remained. I love this episode. I think it touches on so many different topics that the courage to change is all about and that can help people who are struggling with some of the main core ideas that we have to come to terms with when we embark on a recovery journey, one of which is sometimes relapse and having to engage in multiple different types of treatment programs some people, that's what it requires. And it's okay for that to be the case. It doesn't mean someone is a failure and it doesn't mean they're never going to be able to recover. Additionally, we talk about the difficulty in seeing yourself as an alcoholic or some sort of addiction when you feel like you have a house and a car and a job and all those things are in place. And she really gets into that. We also got to talk about her brother and what incredible human being he was and what he brought to Amy's life and what recovery has brought to her life since her last drink over two years ago. I hope that you find as much inspiration and hope as I found and that you share this with anybody who you think needs to hear these same messages. So without further ado, I give you Amy Farnan. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Amy, 
thank you so much for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to meet you. You as well. You as well. Really exciting. And uh, I'm excited to get into your story. Uh, Let's kick off with what is your sobriety date? It is February 12th, 2020. Awesome. Awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. So tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up for you, kind of what set the stage for the drinking career that you would later embark on. Yes, the drinking career. So I was born in Denver, so born and raised in Denver, Colorado, and I am the youngest of three kids and Irish Catholic dad. So I had this jolly Irish dad who loved his five o'clock cocktail hour and a mom who worked at the Catholic school and um, both of them were teachers. So really that importance of education. So I didn't grow up, you know, we weren't rich. My dad worked probably two or three jobs so that we had everything we needed and a really loving home. I did go to Catholic school and I was listening to your uh, story about you going to Catholic school. And I was the perfect Catholic school child because my role in the family, whether it was the family that told me this or I was just born with this, I'm a good girl. I'm a peacemaker. I take care of people and I follow the rules. I was perfect. Perfect for Catholic school because I was just going to do what they told me to do. You know, I would go early in the morning with my mom when she had to go and I would sit in that church. I would just sit in the pew and look around and I loved the tradition. I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore, but I miss that tradition. I missed the I miss the incense. The whole theatrical aspect of the religion is something I loved and I was really seeking connection and I think that's a theme throughout my life. I've been seeking connection and trying to find my voice and my worthiness and to strip myself of that good girl image. When you talk about seeking connection, does that mean that you struggled with finding enough connection in your home or early on with friendships that there was a feeling of lack of connection? Absolutely. I was often alone. I played alone. My brother and sister, my sister's four years older than me. Brother was six years older than me. And so I was kind of an only child, but not really. And so I spent a lot of time alone or with my parents. Just wanted one good best friend. Like I had this one good friend in elementary school and middle school, and that was enough for me. I just wanted that one person. Um, But then also seeing how other kids were connecting and the social aspect, and I never felt like I fit and didn't know where my place was. And so, yeah, seeking that connection with people, but also a spiritual connection. I felt very, I just felt this something bigger than me my whole life. And I wanted to connect with that. And I think that's why I liked sitting in the church by myself. Like, what is that? Tell me, give me something. Did alcohol play a role in your desire for connection? Absolutely. Because I think there were two things. It was connection. So I could drink and I would loosen up and I was not that good girl anymore. So there was that little rebel piece coming out in in me and it was surprising to people like, oh, Amy's cutting loose. Yeah, she's funny and she's a little edgy. Amy's a little edgy. And I loved that. I loved that attention that I got from drinking and also that inhibitions were gone. So yeah. 
Absolutely. When did you take your first drink or that you remember your first experience? Middle school. I mentioned that my dad was, you know, uh, he loved his five o'clock cocktails. And so we had a bar in the basement and it wasn't, nothing was locked up. They just assumed we weren't going to drink it. Or if we were, it was not a big deal as part of growing up. And so I remember a friend of mine from middle school, we went down to the bar and we got a bottle of Amaretto and we put it in a thermos and we... (laughs) You're right. Like a super thermos from the 70s. Um, Yeah. It was green. It was like that olive green, Mm -hmm. ugly 70s thermos. So yeah, that keeps soup warm. We drank it on the bus and rode the bus to the mall. And immediately, like, I feel like I was blacked out from the minute I drank. And then I proceeded to be sick in the bathroom all night long at home with the family coming in and out, making jokes about me drinking and being sick. Because that's what we did. We deflected with humor. What do you think would have been a more like looking back on it, more appropriate conversation? Because you talk about deflection and using humor and, you know, as a way to cope. What would you have said was a good way to cope having learned what you've learned now? I think like a real conversation is something going on. It was just assumed that this is what kids do and they're going to try alcohol. And what's going on, Amy? Because middle school was really hard for me. I really struggled. And just for someone to say, is something going on? What's happening with you? I never felt like I got that in my family because I was just, it was assumed I was okay. I was going to be okay. And so nobody ever really said, you got something going on? And I wouldn't have known how to answer that, but it, it would have been nice to have that conversation. Instead of, ha ha, funny, we're going to make you eat slimy eggs and watch you get sick again. As you matured through high school and into college, how did your drinking play out? I drank in high school. We drank and I got a lot of passes at school because I was an achiever. So um, was able to slide through that while I was drinking. And then in college, definitely drinking was part of the deal. I went to CU Boulder. Of course, I chose a school that was too big for me where I would be lost and yet again, not be able to find that connection that I'm seeking my whole life. And in a class with 500 people. And if I'm there, great. If I'm not, nobody knows. While I wasn't binge drinking, well, I was binge drinking. That's that's a lie. Um, I was binge drinking. Yeah. So I was binge drinking in college and just had this feeling of loneliness. At some point, you and your brother decided to go traveling. Tell me about that, what started that adventure and how that worked out. So after college, I got a job with an engineering company and it was a really horrible experience. We ended up, a coworker and I ended up suing the company for sexual harassment. It was really hard. Uh, the expectations that they had of us as young, attractive women working with the men in the engineering company and what we were expected to do. That was a really hard experience for me. I talked with my parents and I said, I think I just need I need to find myself. I need to get out of Colorado. So a friend of mine was living in Japan and I went to visit him and they, he and his girlfriend were teaching English. I went to Japan and stayed with them. And I spent a lot of time alone getting lost. There was sake on every corner. You know, they have vending machines where you can just buy it and drink it. So I smelled like 
sake the whole time I was there, just reeked of it. And I was miserable. And one night I got a call from my brother who was a professional rock and ice climber. And he said, meet me. And I always have to use this dirtbag climber voice when I am talking about him. He's like, meet me in the Narita airport and we're going on a trip. We're going on an adventure. And I was like, okay, great. And I was like, oh, I'm safe. I'm safe. I'm going to be with my brother. I'm going to be okay. And so he and I went to Nepal. We stayed there for 45 days and we trekked to the lowest ever space camp, did some other trekking um, on the Annapurna circuit. It checked out the Buddhist temples and when we were supposed to be meditating with the monks and we were silly and laughing and not taking anything seriously. And it was just this super fun adventure. He went on because he wanted to do some ice climbing, of course, illegally in Nepal and didn't get a permit. And so he and his friend were gone for a couple of days and I did some day treks out of the village that we were staying in. And I remember a couple of guys coming down the trail to stay where I was staying. And they said, do you hear about the guys who are climbing illegally? And one of him dropped his ice pick on the other guy's head. And I was like, oh, that's my probably my brother. And sure enough, like three days later, my brother comes hopping down the trail and he had this duckbill hat and it was just caked in blood. And I was like, I knew, I knew it was you. And he was like, yeah, everything's fine. Come on, let's go. And just, yeah, he just was this free spirit. And we had this great time. And then we did rock climbing in Thailand and just silly, fun had really deep conversations about spirituality and what we were seeking and what we thought was out there in the universe. And as I recall that part of the trip, there was drinking, but not binge drinking. It was more of a, it was this special moment that I had with him. um, This time that I really felt whole. I felt whole. I felt comfortable in my skin. It was a really good time. What happened when you guys returned? So we got back and uh, I got a job at the University of Denver. He went on a few trips out of the country teaching people how to climb. And then in 1992, so we would have been back about six months, he took a group climbing in Estes Park. It was one of the biggest snowstorms of the year. We didn't hear from him all weekend. He was always really good about calling my mom to let her know that he was safe. And I remember on a Monday morning, she called me and she said, I haven't heard from your brother. Have you heard anything? And I said, no. And she said, well, the weather's really bad up in Estes. And I remember the feeling. I had this sinking feeling. And on my drive to work, I had to pull over and I started crying. And I just knew I was never going to see him again. I got to work and I got a call from a friend up in Estes Park. And they said, two of the people that were in the climbing group made it back to the camp, but your brother and another person didn't make it back. And we're starting a search. You need to bring your parents up to Estes Park. And so they started a search for him. And ultimately, they didn't find his body for about a year and a half after that avalanche. That was heartbreaking just because of how he made me feel. I quickly went into that, put on the mask, everything's fine. I didn't feel I was allowed to grieve because I had to take care of my mom and dad. And I was 24. Here I was the point person for the search party and the rangers. And I feel like I was so young. Here I was trying to take care of everybody and act like everything's going to be okay. 
Do you think that there is an additional piece of difficulty when the family doesn't actually find a body for a period of time? Does that have a a different impact? I think it does. Uh, At least for our family, it did. I will say I would find myself walking on the streets and like, is that my brother? Is that my brother? Is he over here? We made up stories about, do you think that, you know, he was just trying to get away from that crazy girlfriend and maybe he took off for a while and he's going to come back. All of these stories that we were creating that, you know, that hope that maybe he wasn't really gone. I think it adds to a delay in starting the grieving process. And then by the time for me, they found his body, I didn't feel like I could grieve because I'd already had a year and a half. So there was this, well, you didn't grieve for a year and a half. You can't grieve now. They just found his body. Like that's closure for you. That's closure for you and your family. Then I didn't have to grieve. I could just push that down and drink over it. What did your drinking look like from, you know, finding out about the avalanche until the the quote unquote closure? Drunk, like drinking at night, go home from work, drink, get up in the morning, work. I was younger then, so I could stay out till three in the morning and still try to go to work and pretend Mm -hmm. that I had it together. And Sunday afternoons at the bar, my whole life revolved around drinking at that point in time. Was it a significant uptick or was it just a kind of a excel, like just moving in the same direction? I think it was a significant uptick. You know, when I look back on it, I was definitely building up for what was yet to come. (laughs) Yeah. 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 The career, the career was. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So when they find the body, you don't grieve. Did you find, how did it affect your, you had another sibling and then of course your parents, did you see them finding healthy coping skills or was everybody kind of just, um, the family just was never the same. He was, my brother was this adventurer, lighthearted person who would come in and he would pop in. He wasn't reliable, but he would pop in, make everybody laugh. You loved him a lot. And then he'd leave for a while. So we missed that. Where is that person who's popping in and making us laugh and feel okay? We talked a lot about it, but not about how we felt and what that grieving process was like. And then whenever any would ask me, you know, what happened to your brother? Oh, he died doing what he loved. And I'm sure it was the most amazing adventure of his life. And that was my line. And I would smile. And that was it. What would your line be today? He died in an avalanche and my heart broke and I miss him every day. I miss him every day. And I'm glad that he pursued what made him happy. And I and he knew the risks that he was taking. And if I could control things, he'd still be here today. Yeah. Yeah. How did the conversations that you had around spirituality with your brother and that you were ultimately seeking affect this very close experience with death? and ultimately the acceleration of your drinking? That's a good question. I think part of me wanted to reject spirituality. Like we had this great experience. I was mad. I was mad at God. And so I'm going to reject it a little bit, but on the surface, I'm still going to act like I'm spiritual. So I think that was another mask I would wear of, yeah, I'm, I'm spiritual. I meditate or do yoga or whatever. And that's my spirituality. But I think that in all honesty, I was mad at God and rejected 
God. And for me, I feel like that was when my alcoholism, like if it was the shadow was like, Hey, this is, this is it. We got her or we got her now. That's when alcohol became my go-to. It was my answer for everything. What did that progression look like? So it was, it was just an assumption. I'm going to drink every night and it became my routine. I'd stop at the liquor store, get beer. And my partner at that time drank as well. So it was, we're going to drink. We're still going to cook and make dinner and pretend that we're not alcoholics, but we're, but alcohol is going to be everywhere. And so everything we did was about alcohol. It was just an ingrained part of my life. It was like showering. So my partner was a bar drinker, liked to go out to the bars and drink. I liked to drink at home. She would call and say, Hey, meet us. We're out. Let's go, you know, go to happy hour. But I preferred to drink alone at home. So I think there was this schism growing between us. We decided, Hey, let maybe we should have a baby, right? Like, okay, all right. Like, that okay. always solves all problems, right? Yeah. Including yeah. alcoholism. Totally. It's great. Yeah. So then the conversations again in this funny deflection, instead of taking it seriously, it's like, okay, well, Amy, you're going to have the baby. Do you want to go to a bar and find someone? Like it was this funny story of how we're going to have this baby. Ultimately, I did get pregnant and we did it through a doctor and I didn't go to a bar. Although sometimes I wish that I had because it would have been cheaper, but it's okay. She turned out really well. So I just want to pause here real quick. You were come from an Irish Catholic family. Was there any transition or struggle there around that choice that may be interesting to our conversation? You had to bring that up. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm totally kidding. Um, Absolutely. I think my parents tried to act like it was okay that I'm gay, but in reality, it was really hard for them. And so it was Amy and her roommate. Okay. It was not Amy and her partner. And how old were you when you realized that you were gay? 26. Okay. And then Serena, my partner and um, former partner and I got together when we were 27. Did you try to date men before that? Yes. A long history of dating men. Yeah. And did that play into trying to fit in, trying to be the perfect Catholic girl wanting connection that you didn't understand? I think it did. You know, my mom, what she wanted for me was for me to get married, have four kids and live down the street from her. I'm like, that's all you wanted for me? Like you didn't have higher hopes? Really? (laughs) Right, right. I mean, you didn't want me to like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. (laughs) World peace, hungry. (laughs) Come on. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. It was a challenge. And at the same time that I was coming out, my sister was getting married. And so there was this whole family dynamic. Anne's getting married and we're going to throw this big, huge party and it's amazing. And like celebrate mm. the the traditional yes. way of yeah. yeah she's straight this is awesome that was my experience i don't know that that was their intention and so then amy and her roommate will show up to the wedding so and would you protest no no, no. okay mm-hmm. so they they'd said it and you didn't say uh, excuse no. me that is no. my part. okay interesting mm-hmm. because i'm the good girl and i don't want to embarrass my parents and right i you know yeah whatever story you want to tell your friends is fine i don't want to i do not want to interesting and mm-hmm. they knew mm-hmm 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So then when we decided to, Amy's going to get pregnant, the whole, what are we going to tell people? What are we going to say? What's they, they the literally story? Said, what are we going to tell people? Oh, yeah. What's the story going to be? What are we going to tell people? Oh my gosh, are they going to know that you're gay? They're going to know that you and Serena are together. Do we have to tell them where you're going to get the specimen? I mean, it was a huge, a lot of processing about me in front of me about how they were going to deal with me. And Mm -hmm. how did that make you feel? (laughs) Shitty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just really made me feel, again, what's my worth? I'm not worth anything. I'm not fitting into this mold of what this family is supposed to be, what a woman is supposed to be. I just, yeah, I'm not pleasing them. Did you have feelings around how your brother might have been the ease and calm to that situation or would have the lighthearted or the like, come on, guys, kind of? Yeah. Like you guys, come on, stop it. Stop it. This isn't a big deal. Because he was so non-traditional, you know, but it was okay that he was non-traditional because he was exploring the world and rock climbing. And my sister's non-traditional, but she was because she's a flight attendant. So she was flying all around. Like their non-traditionalism was exotic. Mine was embarrassing. Embarrassing. And is it still embarrassing? Uh, so my dad did pass away and my mom is still around. And I just think that, I don't know if it's embarrassing, but I think that she feels, I can still sense that she feels let down with how my life has turned out. And that's, that's been hard and it's not mine. But I think coming to a place where I know that that's not mine, still going to need to work on that a little bit. Probably forever. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Those are one of those things where it's like, there's a lot of, I I have a lot of stuff like that too, where it's like, I have feelings about this, but it's not mine. It's not, it's, and it's okay for me and I have feelings about it, but it isn't mine. And as I need to remember that and holding those two things next to each other is a really important therapeutic practice. So you guys decide to pay the money, get pregnant and have a baby. And how long had you been together when you guys went through this process? We had been together for 10 years. So I was 37 and got pregnant the first time, took really good care of myself while I was pregnant. I ate vegetables and hummus and until the end. And then I splurged on chocolate chip cookies, probably the most clarity I've had as far as, you know, I wasn't drinking. I was so scared to drink. I didn't want to ruin her, um, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, like, oh my gosh, so yeah. scared. And so, yeah. yeah. So I think that that's probably the longest period of time in my life that I wasn't drinking, except for now. What happened in your relationship and what happened in your drinking after having a child? Because I know what it was like getting sober. And I was like, I should have waited. <laughs> I need alcohol for this. Yeah. Uh, so what was it? And, and and I obviously didn't do that. But what was it like going, okay, well, so I could drink again? What, what does that look like? I didn't start up real heavily after I had her until elementary school. And so I remember maybe preschool was pretty chill. Well, let me just say when she went to kindergarten, we were put into this heterosexual world of parenting 
And I was very self-conscious of, I'm raising this child and are people going to be mean to her because she has two moms? What is this going to be like for her? Other parents going to want to talk to us? Are they going to think we're weird? I mean, a lot of real head trips going on with me as she entered elementary school. I remember, you know, hiding the fact that I am gay and a mom um, when I would take Sophia to little music classes because I was the one who did that with her. And so we would do these mommy and me music classes and, you know, people would ask and I was always really vague about our life. And if people said, oh, does her dad work? And I'd say, yeah, full-time in education and just like not, you know, not even, yeah, yeah, not address it. For me, there was a real, again, feeling this like, I don't, I don't fit with these parents. And the group of moms, we do wine 30. And I was like, ding, wine 30. I can do that. <laughs> That's perfect. I love being a mom of a kindergartner and elementary school child. And then I found my way in. So now I can do wine 30, slowly, slowly help these people understand that I'm a lesbian and they didn't care. They could care less. Um, but that's when the progression just really took off and drinking at three in the afternoon. And I was still working, but I had a flexible schedule so I could go drink at three. And I'm a fundraiser. So we'd have, you know, events for work so I could drink while I'm at the events for work and things. And I think that's when the relationship, you have this child who's fixing everything. Not at all, right? I have my ex over here. I'm over here. The baby's here. And oh, so you had split up by this time. Well, no. I mean, I just visually in my head, oh, that's okay. how oh, I right. see who we were separate beings raising this child. It wasn't, we played the role, like we're going to go to the Halloween hoopla at the zoo together and take pictures and be a family. But I really feel like we were very separate at that point. And, and part of that was me really diving into my alcoholism. And also all I cared about was my daughter. So I cared about drinking and my daughter. And so I think I was pulling away from the relationship and then she was pulling away from the relationship too. What did your alcoholism look like when it started to really circle the drain and as you made your way towards being forced to make a change? So my daughter was in sixth grade and that's when my relationship with my ex fell apart. I was having this full-blown affair with alcohol. I was waking up in the morning sick. I would get my daughter to school. I would get through the day at work, but I'd have to leave early and I'd have to pick up shots, little shooters on the way home to get a drink because I felt so sick and I would just pass out at like 7 at 7.30 at night. Um, so really just absent in my life at work and at home. I was told that my ex was leaving me and what a great excuse to drink. So now I was like, okay, well, I'm out of here. And I went and lived in an Airbnb. I was like, great. Now I have more free time to drink. Just drinking alone and barely making it, barely functioning at work. And then I was diagnosed with breast cancer. The dichotomy of being an alcoholic who has these people around me who are trying to save me and get this disease out of my body. And on the other side of it, I was poisoning myself with alcohol. They're trying to save, you know, save me. I, it's, I wasn't dying, but 
they're saving me from cancer and I'm killing myself the minute I leave because I'm stopping at the liquor store to drink. So I drank through surgeries. That was how I handled post-surgery. I drank through chemo. I drank through radiation. I was sick. I looked horrible. I was bloated. I was, I had lost my hair. I didn't care. Ultimately, it came down to custody issues and I was going to lose my daughter. So the answer to that was, Amy, you need to do random UA testing, the ETG testing for alcohol. And I said, can I schedule it like on a Monday and a Thursday? And they were like, yeah, that's fine because that'll cover most of the week. But then I would figure out a way that I could drink one night that week. I knew which night I could drink and still pass the test. So I was trying to manipulate everything. Finally, I ended up finding someone who drank more than I did and really trying to kill myself. And that person said to me, we had been maybe dating a year or a month and a half. And that person said, I'll never take the drink out of your hand, baby. And I was like, oh, I finally found someone who really loves me. That was true love for me. Wow. They'll never take the drink out of my hand. This is amazing. So my family did an intervention and I went to rehab in Colorado. I was just going to go for detox because that's all I needed because I was still functioning. I was fine, right? I'm losing custody of my kid. My life's a mess. I'm living in an Airbnb, but everything's fine. It's all good. I still have a job. Not surprisingly, I drank when I got out of rehab and family stepped in again. And I went to a rehab in Florida. It still didn't take because it took one fight when I got out of that rehab with my sister for me to have an excuse to drink. And now looking back, I was planning those relapses. I can see how I, what I was doing to plan them. But you didn't know that at the time. No, I didn't know that at the time. But now when I look back, I'm like, oh my gosh, Amy. I went to uh, rehab in Florida, then uh, stayed with my sister for a little while. And that's when I found Lion Rock in December of 2019. But I, of course, had made the call to Lion Rock when I was drunk a couple months earlier. You know, like, oh, I really need some help. And so it took me until December of 2019 to get in with Lion Rock. And then I did have another relapse while I was doing the work in IOP at Lion Rock. And that was um, the last time I drank. For me, that was, I remember my mom came over. I remember being on the phone with my Lion Rock counselor, but I was so drunk. I don't remember what I said or what we talked about. And that's when people weren't going to give me a pass anymore. And people were pretty straightforward with me that you've lost custody of your kid. And I would say, no, I, it's a restriction on my parenting time. And I wouldn't say that I had lost custody of her, but I absolutely had. And how was I going to work to get that back and to regain her trust? And I think it's when people started using the real terms of you're choosing alcohol over your daughter, you're, you have lost custody. It's not a restriction on your parenting time. You can't see your daughter because you're drinking. And for my mom to say to me, it's time. You made a choice to have a daughter. You made a choice to have that child and you worked hard to have that child. So step up and be a mom and be the mom that you can be. And that hurt. It hurt for my mom to say that to me because she never talked to me like that. It was always like, whatever you want is fine. And that that stuck with me. I think that's when I had to start taking it seriously. How is it possible that you went to two inpatient programs, did these detoxes, right? Really intensive 24-7 and acknowledging the relapse, but still the skills and moving forward and ultimately getting sober. How is it possible that 
an online program was something that actually worked for you? So I think two things. One, I wasn't ready at the first program I went to. They have an amazing curriculum. They dig deep. You're in classes all day. It was a great program, but I wasn't an alcoholic. So I couldn't hear what I couldn't hear and I couldn't dig in. The other rehab didn't have a structured program. So I really was drying out there and just trying to get my wits about me. I think that's part of it. The other thing for me is with the IOP program at Lion Rock, being with the same group of people every day doing the same work and the phases, the work in each phase at Lion Rock and being pushed by, you know, I think that the counselors at Lion Rock really pushed me. They saw immediately that I wear this mask and that I was going to show up and be a good student and do the right work and say the right things. And they didn't let me do that. And being in those, you know, three times a week, three hours a day, quickly got my number and called me on my stuff. And then just the phase work of really digging in and what is your life story and writing your life story and telling your life story and doing that with people that are in the group with you that you know you're going to see again and they're still going to like you and they're or not like you. It doesn't really matter. They're still going to show up and listen to what you have to say. So the intensity, the quality, I think, of the program and the work really made a difference for me and started seeing changes immediately. And then also being encouraged to find connection at home in real life real time. So the value of this is your space where you're going to come and it's sacred and you're going to dig in and work on your recovery. And you also need to do this outside. Were you skeptical about the efficacy of doing such deep work online? I was going to say no, but I think that I was a little bit. I think that I was like, "Mm, is this really going to work? You know, is it still going to feel the same way when I'm sharing my feelings online as it would be if I could see people in person? Ultimately, it's my recovery. I think that the online aspect actually helped me to dive into myself and to heal myself without trying to please other people and to wonder what they were thinking of me because they weren't right there. And I wasn't going to see them when we left. And so for me personally, it was a benefit. But I do think I was skeptical at first. Ultimately, it it ended up being exactly what I needed. That's a really interesting and astute observation I hadn't thought of before of like, I don't need to, I'm not going to like have to take care of this person at lunch or like think or, you know, maneuver with them in the milieu. This is, you know, I can take care of myself. Whereas if you're a caretaker, as I am, you're thinking about the group and when we leave here and how you're going to support them when you go back to the rooms and that kind of thing. So that's, that's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. And like, oh, I didn't give her a Kleenex. And now, you know, all of those things that busy our minds. One of the greatest indicators of recovery is how quickly someone comes back after relapse, how much they've digested and are able to turn the ship around when it when it goes in in a direction that they don't want, right? Not about what we want, but that they don't want. What do you think your relapse during program was about? I think I was just testing it. I really think I was testing like 
I don't think I'm an alcoholic. Like there was still that doubt for me, surrender and acceptance. And I say it all the time were my biggest hurdles because I really didn't believe I was an alcoholic. And so I think that I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to have, yeah, I'm just going to have a glass of wine. And then it, you know, it's, and I hear it in in the rooms all the time of people saying, yeah, I thought I was just going to have one and it turned into a weekend blackout binge. And that is exactly my story. I had to prove to myself, I guess, that I, I can't just have one. And it was hard for me to admit to myself that I really don't just want one. Right. I don't want one. I want a full bottle of Chardonnay and whatever else. Yeah. I don't really just want one. What are some of the best coping skills that you've used over the past couple of years to stay sober through difficult things, particularly as it relates to, you know, custody stuff with your daughter? So good news is she lives with me full time. So I have her, she's been with me for a year and a half living with me full time, which is amazing. For me, the coping mechanisms were continuing recovery with Lion Rock and being honest in those groups. I work a program outside of Lion Rock, honest conversations with my sponsor, journaling and exercise, walking and taking time for me. I'm still learning how to set boundaries. Uh, it's something that I'm continuing to work on. And I think as I, as I start to see how nice it is to set boundaries and take care of myself and how that looks when I do that, it's going to get easier and easier. So making myself a priority and my recovery a priority. I'm one of those people, and maybe people can relate to this, that I thought you go to rehab or you work a program on Lion Rock or whatever it is. And then, you know, when you get your certificate, you're done, you're done, you're cured. And now I realize and I'm excited about the fact that I get to work on this continually for the rest of my life in whatever way that's going to look for me. And how amazing is that, that I get to make myself a priority and work on me and just get better. Never thought those words would be coming out of my mouth. How do you talk about this with your daughter? How old is your daughter now? She's uh, 16. Okay. So she's, we've been honest about it from the get-go. She knew I was doing this today. She knows that my time when I'm going to be on my CR group with Lion Rock, she knows it's Wednesdays, you know, that that's my time and that I'm going to go to meetings on Saturday night and doesn't really, she doesn't want to talk about it much or hear about it. It's one of those, like, I just need to show her that I'm better. And I know now that she'll know in a second if I start to slip, she'll know it. That's something I didn't realize when I was in my active alcoholism. You know, I thought I was fooling everybody. She would probably see a relapse coming before I would. So that's something that I keep in mind. Has the co-parenting improved? Yeah, I think what's interesting is we're, we live separate lives now, which is for hardcore codependent person like me, I thought we should be intertwined forever. And she's living her life. I'm living my life and we're doing parenting the best way we can in what makes sense for our situation. And we accept each other for that. And that's, that's huge. I didn't think we'd get there. What is something that has surprised you about this process? Like now being as far out as you are has really, you would have never guessed that that it would be that way or you would have felt this way. I never would have thought that I would have 
an amazing life that I do right now and that I would be happy being a single mom, running my own household and taking care of myself. I just never thought I was a strong enough person to be independent and and a mom on my own. I, I just always thought I would need somebody to help me get through things. And that's surprising for me that I'm a unique whole person all by myself. I've never felt that way before. When you talk to newcomers, what is something that you find that you, you know, hear yourself repeating to them, to people who are new that you're trying to relay experience, strength and hope to? That it just keeps getting better and it's not going to be easy, but it gets better. It just keeps getting better and better if we work at it. And all those little slogans, you know, that I hated, they're also true. So I think that's what it's not going to be easy. It's not always easy. And life's not easy, even in recovery. Um, We still, it's still life, but it gets, it gets better and things are easier to cope with when we have healthy minds and healthy bodies. Is there anything that you would want to say to the family members who are pulling their hair out, trying to get their loved one to see that they're an alcoholic? Because you and I talked about how long it took, despite all the clear indications of alcoholism. And sometimes those families, for them, it's true insanity. They're like, I don't understand how you don't see this. Do you have anything that you would tell those families having come out the other end of it? I think it would be that you can't love someone out of this. I got all the love in the world and it didn't get me to the point I needed to be. At some point, you have to take care of yourselves and let the person be on their journey and find their way because no one can fix it except me. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, it's it, it's very, very difficult to wonder what else you could be doing. And, and the answer is this person has to be able to see this. And sometimes the best thing that you can do is set that boundary, is say, here are my standards for having a relationship. The moment that you want to be part or you want to participate in those standards, I'm here, but I am not going to participate in you killing yourself. I love that. And I, and it makes me think about my custody issue because I was such a victim in that. And it was, she was trying to hurt me by taking my daughter away. And it was not about me at all. And that was one of the best things that could have happened. So, so you're right. Setting those boundaries of, I'm not going to let you do this. You can do this to yourself, but you're not going to do it to me. You're not going to do it to your daughter. That was hard. That was hard for me. But the best thing that could have happened, I needed somebody to set those boundaries and say, "Mm -mm, you don't get to do this. For people who struggle with setting boundaries to remember that the person's not going to thank you for setting a boundary right away. They are going to fight you tooth and nail. They're going to hate it. It, It's like holy water on a vampire. You know, it burns. It, It is just not part of your plan. However, that doesn't make it the wrong decision. Yeah, not at all. But that was the best decision. I was not a fit parent. It's and, and we don't see that while we're in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Well, your story is incredible. And I think there's so many people, so many different 
aspects of it that are inspiring for people who are honestly still functioning enough to make excuses for living a very long life that way and living a very sad life because it's still functional. And those those often are the people that I feel the most sad for. The people out there who are functional enough to actually live that way for the rest of their lives. For my fear for them is they never hit a bottom. And you don't have to live that way. It's so much better on the other side. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And and where, if people want to reach out to you, do you have any social media or do you have any place where if someone wanted to get in touch with you, ask you questions that they could? Amy Farnan on Facebook and A Farnan one on Instagram. So anyone can reach out at any time. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Well, hello, Scott. Hello there, Ashley. <laughs> I feel like it sounded like uh, oh, uh, Jimmy Jimmy Stewart from It's a Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Hello there. Uh, well, well, hello there. I don't know about you, but that was an awesome interview. Yes, yes. Uh, Amy is rock star. Okay, and I just want to say. I asked questions about online therapy and Lion Rock, but I want to be clear that wasn't an ad for Lion. Like I, that wasn't an attempt as an ad for Lion Rock. I'm not helping, right? <laughs> not no, helping. you're. It's like you know when somebody draws okay. too much attention to something, where okay. they're like, All right. I'm not like, helping. no, I'm definitely. You know, okay. I'm not trying to influence right. your decision, but I'm going to say a lot of facts that okay. back up what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, not an intentional ad, but. Also, <laughs> but it shouldn't hurt, right? Doesn't hurt. I think if anything, maybe you should check it out. Maybe if, okay. if you're in that boat. I will. I do. Last thing about that is that continuing recovery is one of the programs that you finish where you still continue to go to, I think, one group a week after. So when she was saying that continuing recovery is helping her, I'm sure she meant that both in a macro sense and in a micro program sense. Yeah, that double naming thing is is confusing a little bit in audio format. I think maybe if you saw it written down, but in audio format, you're like, yeah, continuing recovery. Cool. Isn't that what we're doing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're continuing it. We're continuing it. No, it's the name of the program. Oh, well, that is how we got the name. Or the program. It's right there. Low hanging fruit, you know? Low hanging fruit. <laughs> well, we've we've tried the more difficult to reach fruit before and it just doesn't take. So we we decided to Your dog's named Doggy also, right? Yeah. Yeah. D O G. Yesterday I could not find I so for people who don't know, I have a 160 pound South African mastiff and they're called Borbles. I couldn't find him yesterday. And my husband's out of town. The kids had left with for school. I texted the nanny and I was like, so weird question, but you know the dog that doesn't go anywhere and <laughs> sleeps all day and is 10 years old, losing his eyesight and is 160 pounds. Yeah, I can't find him. <laughs> so wondering, weird question, if you took him with you to school for the kids. And I just was picturing, I, I ended up finding he was outside. It was just picturing trying to explain to my husband, like how I lost our Mastiff, who is 10 years old and literally is tired from walking around the block and 
has like six different beds in the house and that's all he wants to do. And I was just like, this call is going to be good. This is going to be, <laughs> this is going to be good. So honey, uh, you know, the human sized dog we have. Yeah. He is nowhere to be found. <laughs> We're working on a theory. We think he was walking down the street mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when, when a trampoline fell off a truck and he tripped and he fell on the trampoline and launched him onto another truck. And then, of course, there was a changeover at a station. Yeah. Anyway, he's long story short, he is in South Africa where yeah, he, he belongs. Yeah, and he he's home. loving it. He's not coming back. We can expect a postcard, which is yeah, nice. Yeah. And now uh, Kingsley's not the type to send a postcard. <laughs> <laughs> I love the first time I came over to your house and you were like, all right, so just a heads up, huge dog. And it's kind of his house. So like, gotta pay respects. You're like, he's like an old G at this point. Like he's like, he's not the form he once was, but like he still expects the respect when you come in the house. And I was like, what am I walking into? (laughs) I'm very comfortable with dogs, not with Godfather dogs. I didn't know that was like a breed that just sits there like smoking a cigar and, you know, playing dominoes or whatever. (laughs) Let me just say the borbles are not for the first time dog owner. That's what I would say is that they are guard dogs and they do not fuck around. <laughs> they do not fuck around for real. I'm I'm not worried anyone's going to break in. I'll just put it to you that way. <laughs> yeah. If anybody out there is like looking for doxing information, like I'd maybe just pick another person. I yeah. don't know. Amy has a dog, right? Oh, Amy does have a dog. <laughs> Amy, has a, Amy has a couple dogs. We got to meet them during the episode. That got cut out, but it did happen if for people were wondering. I have to say I was just completely... I wanted to go on the uh, spiritual journey around the world that was very cinematic in my own mind. I yeah. was picturing all of that and being like, gosh, anytime you lose somebody, that's really hard. But I just something seemingly the relationship was just so special. And yeah, yeah, just a really, really rough experience. And even when he was doing, you know, something he really liked, when you lose someone you love, yes, they're doing something they love doing. But man, it's still heartbreaking for everybody left behind. Kind of to your point too, that what you asked in the show, which the complications of grief and those kinds of really, really crazy, tragic situations yeah. where you're just like, I can't imagine how you work through that. Like there's grief when is there, complicated when enough. No body. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting that she didn't feel like she could experience the grief once they found the body because it had already been so much time. I hadn't thought about that. And that of course, everybody was like, this is closure, but maybe it's actually the opener for them. Yeah. I feel like that's the reason that her episode resonated with me so much is there were so many times where I found myself in her story just saying like, I'd never thought of it like that before. So it was like that part, it was parts about, you know, why online treatment worked for her, sort of you you pointed out, but just the idea of like, I would feel the same way. Feeling in my head that I was responsible for the people in the room. In rooms, we even have to serve different roles sometimes than maybe when we have some distance from that. Yeah, yeah. And that it shapes our behavior that we would act differently, right? Because you could say, oh, well, then at least then I wouldn't have to leave the group and continue to caretake. But actually, it's more than that, right? Because it's it actually shapes what you would say, how you would say it, and the work that you would do. And I, that I never considered. And, and I think that's a really good point for those of us who can't help but shape ourselves that way. And then I think for me, anytime, you know, anytime the kids thing comes into the equation and then that becomes a part of it, it's just like, I think it just speaks to the ultimate power of what, what the 
this is, is that 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 could be in the balance and still the road is continue on, right? It's like, not yet, not yet. Even when that's falling away, that that's being taken away from you. Literally, they say, if you see a bear cub, right? That's what they say. If you see a bear cub, fucking run, go. If you see, right? Because not a dad protecting it. Why, why are you after bear dads? I'm just saying, huh? I'm just saying bear dads, <laughs> they could show up differently. You know what I mean? Bear dads could show up differently. I didn't want to call them out, but here we are. All they are just doing fishing, even though they yeah, got yeah. plenty of fish. Yeah. We get you it. Know? You like salmon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, more honey, huh? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, no, yeah. no. Another one. So we're not one. over here doing anything. It's okay. <laughs> I'm not I'm not giving up my body to feed your children. Nope. No big deal. Oh, it's only our species continuing, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please continue. I, I think I've talked about this before. One of the things for me where it was like, oh, this can overcome that right? It's the most primal instinct you have. As a mother, when they come out of your body, your hormones, all the things, and it can make you choose, you know, a substance over your kids. It doesn't make any sense, but that's how powerful it is because it reaches that part of your brain where those instincts are, are housed. There are periods of time where you are like, wow, I am really in alcoholism right now. Look at me, alcoholic, can't stop drinking, you know, so that it, it's not impossible to be aware of your situation while you're in it. But the extreme measures and what I've seen, what I saw with myself of how we can delude ourselves into thinking that we don't have a problem because we have a job, we have a car, whatever it is, it's wild to watch it over and over and over and over and over again. I can't imagine being a family member and being like, am I like, is what it are we me doing or here? is it you? Yeah. 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 This, this episode was just spotted with all kinds of exotic travel. And so I thought that was, this one was particularly good for today. So um, this is sort of a riddle. Uh, Ashley, if April showers bring May flowers, what do May flowers bring? Pilgrims. Oh, that was the first time you've guessed the punchline. Oh, is that it? That was it. I tried to even deliver it in such a way that you wouldn't hear it. Wow. We've jumped the shark. The show's over. (laughs) This is the moment. Oh, man. Mayflower is being programmed. <laughs> yeah, but the show's over. I, you know, I'm glad everybody's tuned in. Yeah, uh, as long as I you guess. have. But Ashley guessed the joke, and that's. I mean, this time I even got the joke. Yeah. So that's progress. Yeah, and so uh, quickly. Most times I don't understand the joke. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm rooting for you this week. I hope uh, you get a dog if you want one or if you have one or if you have one or if you have one. A dog is a lifelong commitment. People don't listen to him. If If you want it, get a dog. It's a that is a life commitment. You take it seriously. Old age. It's old age. Don't get a dog unless you're willing to take care of it. I agree with that. I can sign off on that. Take care of your dog that you just bought because I suggested it. Ashley. Anything you want to any, anything you want to leave the people with? I want to leave the people with the reminder that this struggle is a journey and that just because your loved one or you or someone you know has gone to treatment a couple times and didn't stay sober or is struggling now doesn't mean that it's hopeless for them and that sometimes that is part of the journey. We have multiple episodes on here of people talking about how many times they tried to get sober before they actually did get sober. That 
that the denial that people are in about what their problem is, that these are all things that are very normal and that they can be overcome. And so I hope that in Amy's story, you heard that hope because it was really loud and clear to me. I heard her normalizing those things and normalizing this struggle to see yourself as part of this group you don't want to be a part of because you have a job or a house or whatever it is and how common that is. So I hope that that is helpful and that you have the opportunity to share that with other people who might need to hear that message as well. Have a wonderful week and we will see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.